Welcome to Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we get root access to the people shaping the world of cybersecurity today and find out a little bit about their journey so far and dive into some of the events that have helped shape their lives and their careers. I met, first met today's guest, FC, also known as Freaky Clown, at a small security conference in the UK about a decade ago, where amongst all the usual small talk with attendees, he introduced himself to a group of us with his characteristic grin and the line, I rob banks for a living. He then later that day went on to deliver one of the most entertaining and educational talks I've seen at an event in the UK. And beyond that, FC is an accomplished ethical hacker and social engineer with over 30 years of experience circumventing physical and digital security controls. He's known for legal and ethically breaking into banks, government facilities, and other high security organizations and data centers to demonstrate their vulnerabilities. FC is also co-founder of Sygenta, a cybersecurity firm, and the author of the recent book, How I Rob Banks. FC, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, James. And where are you joining us from today? I know you're from the UK originally, but you're not with us anymore. No. Um, so whilst I'm from the UK, I grew up there. Um, I've lived there for most of my life. My wife and I have relocated uh, to Las Vegas in the United States. So we've been here for uh, oh, almost eight months now. Well, casinos beware then. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So we'll start at the beginning. Um, when did your interest in technology and computers first begin? Yeah, well, I think it really started when I was a child. Um, you know, I'm I'm now mid forties, coming up to very close to fifties. Um, and you know, at the time when I grew up, you know, computers were a new thing, right? They were just coming into the home, um, and you know, it was just a new technology that I really wanted to enjoy right there were a couple of computer games but you had to like write the computer games from magazines and stuff like that um I didn't really have a computer of my own so I had to like sort of borrow friends etc um so yeah I think my love of technology came from that and the fact that you know I I had to essentially bring myself up as a child like I had a really bad childhood um so I was left on my own a lot or wanted to be on my own a lot I should say um, and that just meant you know, it was me me and the three TV channels um, that that were around at the time and then a computer so getting into computers was really an escape for me and did that at the time was the connectivity were you able to use computers to meet other people and connect online um yes yeah, so the World Wide Web hadn't been invented but the internet was so there were systems of talking to other people through modems it's like a telephone system you would phone up another computer and talk to that telephone system um so yeah there, there was some intercommunication but it took quite a long time to find like the hacker community um because it was new right and not everyone was doing it and um at the time there weren't many laws around it so it was a lot of exploration by people um, so, so that meant there was a lot of learning experiences around there. And that kind of led into my career of, you know, sort of pen testing and, and doing security for the good side, uh, never for the bad side. So, yeah, it was uh, an interesting time and I wish more people could have lived through it. Yeah, it, 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 what, it was very similar to actually my early experience of, you know, computers weren't really a thing and you could get into, you could do a lot of things that today you would get in a lot of trouble for doing. And fortunately, you know, at the time, local law enforcement, other people weren't really aware of computer technologies and there wasn't really the laws in place around it. So you could do a lot more exploring, couldn't you? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the, the law kind of overtook everything and they tried to contain too much and they kind of got a little bit grabby. 
um, when they didn't need to because they didn't understand it. And those early days, you talked about, you know, computers being a real hobby for you and an escape from, from life, really. Mm. But that wasn't why you were initially going. I think you were initially looking at um, mechanics and auto mechanics as a career rather than it being, you know, that you kept that as a hobby, really, the computers. Yeah, so my, my initial thoughts through school were, well, school was terrible for me. Um, I was very, very bored most of the time. Um, we didn't get computers until I was quite along in um, in my scholastic path. Um, we got BBC Micros, if anyone ever remembers those, and I spent a lot of time on those. Um, and then I think just as just as I was leaving high school, like RM Nimbus came in, another um, <laughs> blast from the past. Um, so yeah, I I, I went on, um, and the only sort of real prospect I had because of my grades was really mechanics so I went into mechanics but I excelled at the science part of that and so I got accepted onto a science course um, where I studied biology chemistry and physics and as a side module nuclear physics as well um, and it was during that that I was like Do you know what I I don't want a normal job like this is this sucks this is boring uh, yeah physics is amazing and I love it and I, I love that as a hobby computers is where my passion is um and so I, I basically quit that and got a job doing computer stuff and in those early experiences of computer stuff it wasn't always smooth sailing for you either was it because you had uh, a bad employer at one point and uh, unwanted yeah. and unfounded encounter with law enforcement at quite an early stage yeah. in your career there what yeah what was it, that it experience was, like it was horrific um like i say the, the laws got a little bit grabby um but the worst bit of that was I was employed by a guy who literally lost the plot. He he genuinely had a mental breakdown, and yeah, I really feel sorry for the guy. But how he um, how he coped with that was lashing out at the four employees that he had, and he accused everyone of everything. Um, and for me, what he did was he went to the police and said that I had wiped a bunch of computers that he didn't give permission for. And, you know, essentially what happened um, was I was just shutting down some computers for him. Um, and he he was somehow thinking that that had some effect on his business, but it didn't. And so long and short of it was the police sort of came and had a chat with me and was like, hey, what's all this? They didn't understand any of it at all. Um, thankfully, eventually someone uh, with some computer knowledge was like how this guy's job is to wipe the computers is to do this stuff so what he's done here is all it's all perfectly fine and, and the guy was sort of making up all these uh, allegations and that was very very clear to everyone right? um, and so they just dropped the charges and like go about go about your business um, but through that time that was incredibly stressful for me incredibly stressful and what did that experience teach you about kind of dealing, interacting with, you know, the, the legal basis of the way you deal with things when you move on into ethical hacking and physical pen testing? Yeah, I mean, the important thing is understanding the law letter by letter and, and knowing what you're doing. The thing is with that lesson from that, though, was I knew the law and I hadn't broken the law. Right, There was no law there that I, I sort of skirted around or anything like that. The guy literally made it up. Um, some accusations so there's there's nothing that prepares you for that like someone coming up and be like this guy did this or or anything like that it, it kind of knocks you from the side it's like what 
what are you on about? Like, and, be, and especially if you know it, you go, no, that's, that's completely wrong, but you have to go through this process. So what I learned from that was don't trust people and stay away from them. Yeah. And how did that role there in yeah. your initial foray into the kind of world of IT, how did you then start moving across into the sort of specialist niche of cybersecurity? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'd actually been doing that for hmm, 10 years before that point, I reckon. Um, yeah, how that happened is I got a job doing some sysadmin work that was, you know, around college time when I was doing sort of the mechanics um, and that sort of took off. That's the job that I ended up doing. Um, how that works is I, I started looking after these systems and I had to protect those systems, right? I knew about hackers and bad actors. Um, and so to protect those systems, I had to learn what they were doing, which is great because I loved doing that stuff anyway. So in the end, I ended up spending more time doing that, attacking our systems. And I kind of enjoyed that way more than trying to build the defenses. <clears throat> And so it was, a, it was a natural progression for me to sort of just focus on that type of work. And I was so unbelievably lucky that that turned into a career and that turned into an industry, right? Because if it hadn't, then I don't know what I'd have done with my life. I'd have just carried on playing with computers and been, um, been very poor, probably. <laughs> and I believe actually one of your things you did early in your career was actually you hacked your way into an information security conference. I, oh my gosh, that gosh, you've got a great memory. Um, so yeah, InfoSec, I think it was, um, at the time you had to like pay for a ticket. And as part of the London 2600 crew uh, at the time, we we decided as a, a small prank that we would social engineer our way in to InfoSec. And we built ourselves a tiny little booth. And I mean tiny. It was, we found a gap of about a foot between two booths. And we put up like a London 2600 um, sign in this one space. And uh, someone had climbed into that space and was like manning the booth for about 20, 20 minutes. But we got to go around InfoSec. It was great um, at the time because, uh, well, we'd never been there. And now I've spoken at InfoSec a couple of times. It's, uh, it's a wonderful conference. It's nice that it's gone full circle. Though, that you, uh, the conference you broke into has now had you back as a presenter. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It could, it could have gone a very different yeah. way there. Yeah. And that, that physical side of things is, is something people often don't think about when we're, we're talking about cybersecurity. What, what was it that drove you to start looking into and doing the, the physical pen testing as well as the, the sort of technical uh, exploit-driven stuff? Um, yeah, so... Yeah, a lot of people know me for that, you know, robbing banks type physical stuff, right? But... To be honest, like eighty percent of my work is not. It's doing the physical. Uh, it's doing the sort of the digital stuff. It's talking about this sort of thing as well. Um, but how I got into it is kind of interesting. And um, I have, I have a bit of hypervigilance, right, as a as a mental health issue um, from my childhood. Um, that hypervigilance means that you spot threats that are maybe just on the periphery of everyone else's um, awareness. And so when I used to go in to do um, pen tests of networks of clients, I would go in and I would spot all these security issues. And so what I would do is I would write up my report as normal for, for the pen test and it would be you know, 20 or 30 issues or whatever. Um, and then I would write on a separate bit of paper because it wasn't part of the job. I'd write on the separate note 
some physical issues that I'd saw in the building. And that list kept getting longer and longer. Right? The more I was doing it, the more it fed into it. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember this. I'll, I'll look at that in the next building. And so eventually that got like a page, page and a half, two pages. And most of the time, that was then bigger than the actual pen test report. And eventually a client came to us and was like, look, this has been really useful. Can we get you to do the physical assessment on another building? And don't worry about the pen testy bit. Uh -huh. So we essentially said yes, because it's going to bring in some money. So, um, yeah, that's how I really got started in that career. And, you know, the, the first time you rob a bank, that's terrifying. So I, th I think the thing that's really interesting with the approach, and when I've seen you speak before and tell the story, it's often like, not, it's like a parable or an Old Testament story, right? That, you know, the, the wise bank come to you and say, we've invested all this money in security. We are the most secure in the land. Nobody can possibly compromise us. And we spent all these millions and we have these things here. And then you come along as, as the person and look at them and go, okay, you've spent all that money over here, but I can circumvent it by going over here. And I think one of my favorite examples is that is, could you share the story where you were hired to steal some gold bullion maybe? Yeah, um, I mean, this this is a, a quite a famous story now. And yeah, I've had some people comment that there's no way this happened, right? But I can absolutely assure you this did. So I get asked by a bank to break in. And if I can, um, you know, because there's, there's always a, a back and forth, right? Companies come to us and say, like, we've spent all this money on security, try and get in. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get in, right? I've been doing this for 30 years. I've got 100% success rate. I'm going to get in. What's the next step that you want me to do when I do? And they often, you know, go back and forth with me and be like, oh, well, you'll never get a hand on it. Yes, I will. Just, just give me another task just in case. And so this one, the guy was like, okay, right. If you can get in, then try and make your way to the, the bank vault, right? Like just put your hand on the vault and, you know, take a photo or whatever. So I'm like, okay, cool. So about... 20 minutes after I start the job, I'm in the bank, right? I've already got in, I've circumvented everything. Uh, and I'm wandering around, and I'm like, right, okay, time to find the vault. So vaults are incredibly heavy, right? They're so heavy, generally the bigger ones are put in place on the foundations uh, and then they build the building around the safe, right? And that was the case with this building. Um, so I knew I had to go downstairs, right? So I make my way as far down as possible get through some security uh, systems and I find myself in this room that is kind of, it kind of looks like a storage area, right? But in the middle of this big room with, uh, with just junk everywhere, there's a huge square block, right? Now it just so happens I've come in from behind the safe. So I'm not staring at the front of it. I'm staring at the back of it because it's freestanding in the middle of this room. So I wander out and I'm like, geez, this, there's not many people here. There's no security around anyway. There's cameras, obviously, but cameras, they're, a, they're an afterthought, right? Like, cameras never stop anyone. Cameras are only there to show the evidence of something that's happened that you found out, right? So I walk around the, the corner of this safe, and the door is open, right? It, it's a proper Hollywood style. You know, it's got the knobs and the dials, everything you'd expect. Right? It looks like a prop safe. And... This, the safe door's open and I'm like frick is going on like this is weird like I, I know how to crack into safes I teach you how to do it in my book but here is a safe that is now 
open and there's no one around. So I'm thinking, well, this is clearly a setup, right? They know I'm coming. So I peer into this um, into this safe and there's these these little blue trolleys and they're stacked full of gold bullion, right? These big bricks, right? The, the, the classic brick that you, you're picturing in your head, right? And I'm like, holy crap, there is a lot of gold here, right? So I walk in all the time expecting any second security going to be there. So I walk in, I pick up one of these gold bars. Now, gold bars weigh a lot, right? I, I don't know how many people have ever been able to hold one of these, but they wear up. They, they weigh about the same as a two-and-a-half-year-old child, right? And if you don't have one of those to pick up around, right, pick up a can, a, 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 yeah, a box of 24 cans of something and then put another six-pack of something on top of that. And that is all, all of that weight is compressed into like 11 or 12 inches of gold brick. So I've got this incredibly heavy brick that I'm now holding in two hands. And I sort of shuffle out of the, the vault. Still no security. Somewhere out. Frick is going on. So I look around and I find like an old laptop bag. I wrap my jacket around the gold bar because they, 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 they can have quite sort of sharpish edges because of the weight, right? So. Didn't want it to go all the way through the bag, so I wrapped my coat around the ba- uh, the bar, stick the bar in in the um, in the bag, and walk off. At no point is anyone present or stops me, and I'm like, this is bizarre. So I walk out of the building, which was easier than it should have been, <laughs> and I walk around the corner to like this little cafe thing, and I phone the client. I'm like, dude, I've got one of your gold bars, and I have never seen anyone run into a shop like as quick as he did he literally like kicked the door down like ran over to me i was like what the hell have you got you're joking and i sort of opened up the bag and i sort of show him the gold bar and he's like what the fuck is going on so he drags me into the boardroom calls this emergency meeting and like there's loads of people around this like mahogany table right and we're all sort of chat they're all channeled out who's this guy looks disheveled he's baseball cap uh, and um I, I get this gold bar out and it's just like you know indiana jones would if you would right i put the bar down on the table and i sort of unveil it from wrapping my jacket out and he just sort of hear the room just get quiet and then it just erupts into like emotion uh that was that was quite good and what essentially happened was they were doing an audit Right, because people are like, oh, this never happens. They never leave the safe open. They never leave gold unattended. They were doing an audit, um, and they had removed two two gold bars, and the security staff there had decided to to go with them um, to where they were taking the two gold bars because they thought protecting those two gold bar, bars because they were leaving was more important than staying with the vault, which they then didn't shut. So it was just a bizarre moment of, Everything coming together into one specific time when I just happened to walk in. If I'd have been there like half an hour earlier or half an hour later, I'd have probably bumped into them. So it's a bizarre moment for me. And did you ever find out how much the gold bar was worth at the time? Yeah, I think they're worth about like 800 grand, something like that. It's, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Hence the reason someone ran very fast to the uh, coffee shop across the yeah. road. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I wish I'd taken two. <laughs> No, of course, this all sounds very exciting and very kind of Ocean's 11, 12 or 13 or whatever version we're on now. But yeah. the world of actually doing physical pen testing and robbing banks isn't always as glamorous 
uh, oh, okay. um, I, I believe yeah. you once spent a cold evening just watching a door uh, a facility. Many, many, many cold nights uh, in many uncomfortable positions. There was a time I, I um, broke into a diamond merchant. Um, I got my got my t-shirt caught on the window latch, so it, it sort of covered my head. And then my foot slipped into a toilet bowl. It was just like it's the worst day ever. But the, the, the story you're talking about is um, a client came to us and said, um, very unusually, because they, they generally just want us to break into the building, but they, they came to us like, we've upgraded all our security, we've got a new door, and we want you to focus on just getting through that door, this one door, because it cost them, I think at the time it was like £60,000 or something. Crazy amount of money for one door. Uh, it was one of those revolving types. And they said, can you get into it? And I looked at it, I was like, Frankly, no, right? I'm not going to get through that door. It looks pretty well laid out. It was state-of-the-art at the time. We had no way of getting to it to do anything technical to it. It was... Um, I couldn't have told them a way to improve their system. So I was like, all right, I reluctantly took the job. Um, and, yeah, I, I got to their site. I had to climb over a barbed wire fence, um, you know, which is easy enough to do i um i climbed into this site and you know this was nighttime so i am wearing a balaclava i've got night vision goggles that sort of stuff um proper uh, proper sort of breaking in type stuff and there's a little stream that runs fairly close to the door um well it's, it just looks pretty but it's probably there for some reason um so i climb into this ditch and i, I sort of crawl along on my hands and knees for what felt like miles, but I'm sure it wasn't at the time. Uh, <laughs> I climbed all the way down this this ditch, and I'm getting muddy, and I'm soaked, and it's cold. It's like two, three in the morning. Um, I get in position near the door so I can watch it through through my goggles, see if I can work out any sort of patterns of use or anything like that. And I'm sitting in this ditch, and it starts to snow. And yeah, you're from England. The snow we have there is not nice wonderful snow it's it's basically a slushy being poured on you um so i was getting colder and colder as the night went on and i spent three or four maybe five hours in this ditch watching this door um eventually i spotted a floor in it and so i had to like crawl back down through this ditch like it looked like something from um what's the movie um and oh my god tim robbins completely forgotten the name of it where he crawls down the ditch. Ah, oh, you'll have to edit that. No, yeah, it'll come back. Um, Shawshank Redemption, that's it. Yeah. So I'm crawling down this ditch and it's all muddy and I'm just getting cold and I just hate every moment of my life right there. Um, I get back to my hotel, I have a shower, I, I get changed and I come back the next morning and I get through the first barriers of security, which weren't particularly great, but I'm not going to tell you how to get through them. So I'm approaching this door and... What you see on the CCTV later is this thing, right? There's me in a suit walking up towards the door. And as I walk closer to the door, I seem to check my watch and I take a like half paused step, right? So it's like a really slow step. And then I just carry on walking normally. And as I approach the door, I get into the, the sort of the doorway part of this revolving door. And suddenly it just turns. It turns 180, and, and basically I walk through without breaking step. Everyone in the security room that was watching this 
was gobsmacked. They were like, how on earth did you circumvent all of this security to, to get through these systems, right? Because you didn't seem to do it. You looked at your watch, but you didn't seem to, like, there were no smart watches then, right? You, you didn't do anything. Um, one even suggested that maybe I was a Jedi Knight, which I found hilarious. Uh, that, that's, that's the only explanation he could have come up with. Um, but what actually happened was when they put the door in, there was a mode for certain doors called engineering mode. And engineering mode is there for the builders, right? Builders are not security experts, and security experts are generally not builders. So two different teams. So the builders put it in, they put it into engineering mode. And engineering mode basically says, every 15 minutes, just do one revolution so that you know that the bearings are working, it's not catching on anything, and you can hand it over to the client. And when you hand over to the client, you take it out of engineering mode. Nobody did that. So by sitting in the ditch watching this door, hours on end, I was able to precisely time when that door entered engineering mode, did the revolution. So all I had to do was precisely time my steps into the door so that I, I sort of was in it when it did that rotation and let me in. That was it. That was, that was how to circumvent a £60,000 door um, without even trying. I mean, it, it's brilliant that you managed to uh, turn the night in a ditch into a positive there. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was never If they hadn't put it in engineering mode, <laughs> you'd have had a, a very different experience there, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I'd have to have tried some other ways around it. But yeah, it, at the time, it was a very good door. Um, it probably wouldn't hold up to anything nowadays. Yeah. There's some interesting things as well. You mentioned that, you know, a lot of people know you from talking about the physical side, but you've also done a lot of the technical side. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't always quite go to plan and there's a lot of things in, in the way you have to adapt with your physical pen testing, you have to adapt with your technical things. Um, mm. One of the stories I'd, I'd come across in the research was um, you were trying to scan, do some port scanning on some very dusty network switches and right. it didn't go quite to plan. So <laughs> if you could tell oh us a little God. bit about, about yeah, that drama. You have the best memory, James. I don't know how you remember that story. Yeah, so we were called into this tiny little uh, council Right. They, there was like, it was a tiny little council office in the middle of nowhere. And they had like five people on their staff. Um, it was ridiculous in this tiny little office. And obviously no one knew anything about computers at all. And they had this, this like little network cupboard that they used kind of as a storage facility as well as for the networking device. And it was unbelievably dusty. Like, like nobody had cleaned it since it had been installed. Everything ran super hot. And we were chucking loads of network packets through it. Like it got it got overheated essentially. <laughs> Unfortunately, dust and other detritus from their uh, storage facility, um, you know, such as um, shredded paper and stuff like that, it was awful in there. Just like I can't even explain how bad it was. What happened next was there was a small fire. <laughs> now, now, yes, this is maybe where the word firewall comes from, but um, no, the, the switch caught fire or the stuff around it caught fire because of the switch. Um, that kind of brought a very prompt end to the pen testing. And now we kind of, sort of make sure that you know, people are looking after their equipment. It's, it's a very important part of network security. Because without a switch, um, yeah, without some comms there, they were down for a, a couple of days. And yeah. how did the client react to the fight? I mean, was it immediately uh, obvious it was you that had caused it? 
Well, I mean, to be honest, whenever pen testers come in, we get blamed for everything. Like, even if we, I remember once getting blamed for taking down a network and I'm like, are you sure it was me? Like, yeah, yeah, we've got logs showing. It's like, definitely you guys, you came in, you you, you got in, you, you brought all this stuff down. And I'm like, okay, cool. Where's my laptop? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, it's still in my bag. We haven't been here like 10 minutes. Like everything's still packed away. We haven't plugged into your network. We haven't got any anything so it's definitely not us and they they sort of hung their head in shape as walked off um you know pentest is you're blamed for everything that goes on whenever they're around have you ever been blamed for any internet connectivity issues in brazil <laughs> oh my god how do you remember all of this so, so um me and a few colleagues were doing a uh, a pen test of a bank and we had a very specific scope and my colleague is a little bit more, or he was at the time, he, he was a little bit more um, adverse to scope than the rest of us. And so he, he went off plan a little bit and he decided that um, this bank uh, and this bank had an entirely flat network right, across, the, across the globe. Um, and it was just awful, awful, awful mess. But he decided that he was going to go and um, uh, test the Brazil segment of the network whilst we focused on more local stuff. And um, all of a sudden, the client comes running over. I He hadn't actually told me, even though I was like the team lead. He was just doing this on his own. So the client comes running over to me and he's like, ah, we seem to have lost Brazil. And I'm like, well, we're not testing Brazil. And suddenly my colleague's like, I am. And I'm like, oh. What what are you doing? <laughs> and so he had been just battering the hell out of this connection. The trouble is, it was just one line. They, were, they had one line connecting where we were to Brazil. And he'd completely saturated it with, with network traffic, which meant they couldn't get any data to, uh, to where we were and we couldn't get any data to where they were. It was just a complete mess. And he'd, just com he'd completely dosed the entire country. And so for that bank... That network in Brazil just went down, like, and it was down for like a good few hours or so. Tried to sort of rectify everything. It was like, oh my god! Like, so, so paying attention to scope is really, really important um, because if you don't understand where you're attacking, um, you know whether or not you, know, you, you should be or not at the time. You have to understand the limits of some of these network lines. Um, otherwise, bad things can happen. In, that's a, a good point. In, in general, you know, some of these things that have happened where a switch has caught fire, a country has gone offline by accident, or some gold bullion happens to have appeared in a coffee shop across the road from the bank, are often down to maybe things that the clients put in scope that they didn't realize what the full consequences would be. So if you're on the, on the other side of that, what would you advise people to do when they're thinking about an engagement with physical pen testing digital pen testing, whatever it is, how should they be thinking about scope and making sure it's it's the right thing for them? Yeah, so uh, ideally what you want to do is 100% scope in everything, right? Because you want to be testing everything that the criminals are going to be attacking, right? That's not always realistic. And so we say, if you're starting off, work out what your crown jewels are. Now, this is a, a statement that's been made by, by many IT security professionals over the years, like protect your crown jewels. And they don't really qualify what that is, right? So a lot of clients that we speak to, 
they are protecting the wrong things because they've just heard this phrase, like protect your crown jewels, and they think it's the most expensive thing, right? Because it sounds like it, right? Protect the most expensive thing in your company and you'll be fine. Well, it's not. The most important thing to protect is the things that will break your company, right? So the way we get our clients to think about this is don't think of the most expensive thing, but think of it as a thought experiment, right? So imagine whoever you are in your company, you want to take down your company, right? How would you go about it with the knowledge that you have of the systems that you have, of the ways of working that you have? How would you attack your own company from within your company, right? What is the one thing? What is the one piece of computer data? What is the one piece of written data? Um, what is that one thing that without that thing, your company will never trade again. And that gives a whole different picture, right? Because suddenly our clients are like, oh, actually, we've got some files in the back room that if they ever get stolen, that's way more important than our computer email systems going down, for example. Uh, you know, we've had people that have suddenly realized that they're protecting the wrong computer systems. And they're like, oh, actually, our client database is way more important to us than the actual data that we're holding because that that's just transient data whereas the clients that we work with and all their all their information is way more important because if we lose that then we have no way of knowing who our clients are so it it gives it gives our clients a bit more clarity on what they should be trying to protect and then you start with that and you test that and then you expand that out and be like okay how can we attack from other areas and essentially what we do is we end up becoming uh, a simulation of the malicious insider, right? Because they're the people that are the most dangerous because that's what an attacker is trying to simulate. So once they get into your systems, they they try and gain all the knowledge that the, the employees have to get to the, the juicy stuff. Yeah, I think one of the things I've seen you talk about in the past as well is the mindset that people think, well, I've, I've done all these things to secure the software and I've put all these firewalls in place, all these network controls, all these, you know, multi-factor all things. And I think at the time you pointed out, well, I'll just walk in your office and pick the laptop up while it's unlocked and just physically yeah. take things away. So yeah, is that the mistake you commonly see? People aren't thinking of security holistically, aren't thinking like an attacker <laughs> who doesn't necessarily have to follow the law or follow a particular path. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we started Sargenta with that, um, that sort of mindset in place like right? so you know i bring the the physical security i bring the digital security my wife brings the human factor side of security because if those three areas aren't working together in your company you don't have security right so you can spend all of the money on education right but if your digital team is lax then people are going to get in right? and vice versa if, if people spend loads of money on the digital stuff and I physically break in because it's easy. I'll steal the service. I've done that, right? I mean, you can find pictures of me with like 14 PCs that I stole. Um, you know, that becomes easy. So you have to make sure those three areas are working together because without one of them, you, you literally don't have security. You've, you've just got some spending that you've done elsewhere. And that actually brings me on quite nicely to, uh, there's, there's so many stories we could go into. You know, you've had a really interesting career, but... It, one of the things I associate you with is using humor and sometimes pushing things a little further than maybe others would to make a point during an engagement. <laughs> yes. And uh, 
So on that note, we've done some research into some of the you know, FC urban legends, and we thought we'd do oh. a bit of a quick fire round to see if they're true, false, or maybe you simply <laughs> can't comment on them. So I'm going to throw some questions at you if you've got like a, a short answer to uh, the situation oh to explain God. it. Yes. Yeah. Just okay. it. let's see where we go. So um, yeah. first one, have you ever pretended to be the son of an executive? Yeah. Yes, but not intentionally. I, I broke into a company and it was really weird. Like everyone sort of just avoided me um, and I couldn't get stopped doing anything. And it was only later on um, that I found out that I looked almost the spitting image of the director's son and everyone thought I was him and he was a bit of a dick um, and I was behaving like a bit of a dick. Um, so they just like left me alone to do whatever I wanted to do because they thought I was the director's son. So yes, but not intentionally. And have you ever built your own office on a client site before? Oh yes, I have. Um, this is something I like to do. After a couple of hours, you kind of get a little bit bored breaking into places. Um, and so you have to kind of go a little bit beyond just to show the client like this, this is how lax your security awareness is, right? Because if I can do these certain things without getting stopped, then what I'm trying to do is like find the lowest point of, of when someone will be like, hang on, that's unusual behavior. And in this one particular instance, uh, this site had four buildings. And the only way that I could really prove that I'd got into these four buildings was I found a large open space and um, I basically stole equipment from each of the buildings and built my own office. So I had a table, I had a chair, I had a PC, a monitor, a keyboard, I had a phone. The phone I actually brought uh, um, stole from the uh, head of security. He was like ex-CID or something. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was a fantastic... And there's a great photo of me sitting in my office um, uh, that I built from all of the uh, all of the stuff around. Um, the most interesting bit on that, and I, I know this is a bit longer than the answer you wanted, was the chair. The chair I stole from the marketing department, and uh, it was this really f nice plush chair at the time, and I couldn't get it out because they had these big security barriers. And as I was trying to get it out, um, some employees came over and they're like, "Oh, mate, you'll have to call security to open the loading door to get that out." And I'm like, "Oh man, I just want a chair out." So they helped me pull the chair over the security barrier. So it was like you know, four or five of us like trying to get this chair over this six-foot barrier. Um, not once did they ask me why I wanted to take this chair out of the office, um, but it was nice of them. They helped me with that. So yeah, I have built an office. Um, and on the theme of getting people uh, on board and complying with you, have you ever tried to initiate any team building exercises with uh, <laughs> companies? employees yes. whilst on an engagement yeah yeah so um there's been a couple of these um one was in a government uh building and um the the area that i got into was very off limits and i'd managed to wangle my way into that place and made some friends and i, I kind of was I, I basically told them i was there for a team building exercise and so i convinced them to build teepees with me as a team building exercise <laughs> and so we got these like bamboo canes that they had uh, from christmas and we used the coats and we were building these teepees and it was it was a great laugh we had like a good like hour of, of this team building and it really did it helped them as a team and later on as i'm showing my client around i'm like oh yeah and i went in there and he's like no you didn't i'm like yeah yes i did and he's like no you can't get in there i'm like I did. So I knock on the door. Someone sees me in there. Well, come in. AFC. 
And he's like, oh, hang on a second, this is weird. So he, we're now walking around and people are like high-fiving me like, hey, I see, I thought you were leaving for the day. So <laughs> um, he's just gobsmacked. Like, how do, how do you know all these people? Like, you clearly got in and like everyone's talking about the teepees. And um, suddenly someone comes over and kicks him out because he's not supposed to be in there. <laughs> and there's a great photo um, that I, I posted online um, of the TP building and then got told off for posting that because it's a company attack. Um, but yes, I have built TP's uh, team building exercises. Uh, it's just one of my favorite stories is that of, of uh, people just kicking the actual client out of the office because they didn't think oh, he should be there yeah. when you should. That's um, uh, Yeah, that's happened more than once, actually. It's quite, it's quite funny on that. And I believe you've also been in situations as well where you're working on sites that are you know have secure floors and secure facilities and you've been able to gain access to things that again the person running the engagement with you isn't even oh, able yeah. to access themselves and get quite upset about coming to meet you on your new secure <laughs> office yes yeah so you know as well as building offices i like to take over offices and have a bit of space and there was uh one time a client came to us and was like right can you can you get into this building and i'm like yeah totally um so i think it's like sort of i started about like 10 to 9 by like 10 past nine i was already like in several of the buildings and i'd met the client in uh, their little cafe and we're chatting about stuff and he's like well okay as you're here um see if you can get into the secure building because there's a secure floor in there that like literally only like five people are allowed on i'm like that sounds like a challenge um you know I'll, you can buy me lunch if i do it right and he's like Okay. Um, now, this is the sort of site where they have a police station on site, right? It's, it's, a, it's a hardcore site. So I managed to get up onto this secure floor, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm going to skip a whole bunch of stuff about how I did that. I get into the secure floor. And um, I go down this really long corridor to this secure room. And there's four little offices. Um, and there's two people there. Two of the offices are empty. Two of the the people are still there, but one of them is just leaving. So I pretend that I'm like from IT and I'm doing like asset checking and stuff. And they're over the moon because they never get any visits from IT, mostly because they don't have the clearance to be there. Um, so I'm helping them fix a bunch of computer issues, right? And they're, they're just becoming my friend like throughout the thing. And so um, I'm, I'm like sort of writing notes. I'm like, hey, do you mind if I just step into that other office and write up all my notes um, that I need to do? And they were totally cool with it. So I go in. And I slightly shut the door and the door slightly gets shut more and more, right? As, as they're not paying attention. And so I'm now in this office of this secure ring on this secure floor in a secure building in a secure site, right? And I'm like, holy crap, this is amazing. So I use the desk phone and I phone my client. I'm like, hey, dude, like you've got to come up. Like, this is amazing. You need to see where I am. And so a couple of minutes later, I get a phone call from him. It's like, um, they won't let me in. But I can't get in to this this floor. So I, I open the door and I shout over to the guy. I'm like, hey, I need to get some, uh, I need to get my boss in. Um, it's like security around. And so he says, oh, yeah, he's, he's probably down in the kitchen. So I wander down this long corridor. I find the security guard. And I'm like, let, I'll, I'll carry on making your, your cup of tea or coffee or whatever it was um, if you go and let my boss in. So he's like, cool. So he goes down, <laughs> grabs my boss, the client. Um, and gets him through the security system and he escorts him all the way down to my office where I'm now sat and he comes in and he's like what the hell like 
I've never been on this floor. I've n- I didn't even know these rooms existed. Like he'd never seen the layout or anything. Um, and so he was just like, I feel really uncomfortable being here. Like I'm, I shouldn't be here. I'm not, I'm not cleared to be here. So I'm like, okay, let's leave. So we take some photos of evidence and stuff. And as I'm leaving, I'm like, hey, see you later. And like, they're all like waving at me and like, yeah, everyone's best friends. And he's like, I've worked here for like 10 years, I think it was. And I've never met these people. They have no idea who I am. And yet you've been here, and it's like half an hour or something. He goes, you've been here like half an hour. You know everyone by name. They know you by name. You've got your own office. Like, what the hell is going on with security here? So, yeah, it was, it was a fun day. And I know we've, we've gone through quite a lot of fun stories there, but obviously there is a very serious side to this. You know, these are secure yeah. government facilities. These are banks yeah. who are doing things to help improve security for the greater good there. And everything <laughs> you're doing is, is legal and sanctioned by the clients. But yes, that's not potentially always a clear cut cut line and how do you yeah. how do you manage that and stay on the right side of it you know it can always be tempting to push it that little bit yeah. further potentially yeah i mean yeah i i have a scope that i have worked out with the client of what i can and cannot do um you know there are certain behaviors that we cannot and should not as as ethical hackers um try and simulate right so we make it very clear that we are never going to you know self fire alarms right that may work for a real criminal but that is going to cause a lot of distress to a lot of people and have a business impact so anything that touches on those two we absolutely will not do so no emergency services right like if you go in and pretend to have a heart attack well that might cause stress to someone else that may cause them to have a heart attack for example right you don't know if someone is pregnant and that may lead to some complication like you have to be very aware of all of these things so some of these sensational stories you may hear from other people you know maybe they shouldn't have been doing that right they have to have a bit of a a, an ethics and a moral around what they're doing um and sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the moment and do things that you shouldn't um so i just try to stay cognizant of that um you know we don't break anything unless that's in the scope that we're allowed to because if you if I walked up to a building, I could smash the window, right, and then get in. Well, yeah, that's what a criminal would do. What I do is I note that that window is probably insecure and it needs securing in some way. Because if I break it and then I wander off, well, you know, a crime of convenience can definitely happen there because someone else will come along and be like, well, the window's broken already. I'll go in. So you don't want to open up more vulnerabilities to a site. So yeah, there, there's a there's a bunch of things that we have to really pay attention to there. And one of the things you mentioned earlier was you've gone on with uh, your wife, Dr. Jessica Barker, to found your own firm, Sagenta. Mm-hmm. What's your vision for that company? What what did you think the the gap in the market was that you were looking to deal with that? So we wanted to create a, like a one stop shop of expertise in those three areas, right? Because if you go to any of the sort of the, the companies that are doing either of those things um, they they just focus on that one thing because they have speciality in that one area um, and we realized that you know we'd worked together on quite a few projects and um, beforehand it's like hang on we can offer all of these to the client at the same time right and so they they get better value for money out of it and and that's really the driver of what we what we wanted to achieve and when you're engaging with clients and, and working with them i know you've got quite a, a broad base of clients now are there things that you are seeing that you th- saw 10 years ago 
this will be dealt with. We won't be dealing with this again. Are there like common mistakes that just seem to be repeated throughout history? Yeah, I mean, basically everything. Everyone repeats the same mistakes. I mean, if you look at the OWASP top 10 of uh, vulnerabilities, like that hasn't changed. It's just shifted around a little bit, but we haven't fixed any of them fundamentally. Um, so yeah, trying to get those fundamentals down is really important. But a lot of people still fail at doing that because they're kind of um, distracted by whatever the new shiny thing is. And they're like, oh, my God, we must protect the answers. It's like, well, no, how about you get just basic passwords right? Like, just, just get that sorted. Get patching right. Make sure that's being done. Rather than, like, focusing on, like, let's protect the world against AI attacks. It's like, well, just, just do the foundations first and then you'll be a lot better than most people. And uh, you've got the kind of, you've founded a new business, you've moved across to the US, you've got a lot of things going on. And at the same time, you've also recently written a book. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, yeah. the book and what you want people to, to take away from that. Yeah, this, this book has been like 10, 15 years in the making, right? You, you can go through my old Twitter feed and be like, oh my God, he's still talking about maybe the book will be published next year. Uh, so basically the book is a collection of my anecdotes from my career right and i think i think it's like 70 stories in there of, of just little snippets kind of like the sixty thousand pound door right that, that one's in there and the time i kidnapped someone the, the time i stole a helicopter all of the all of the fun stories from my career but they they will have like a a lesson from them um and so about a you know a year or so ago wiley came to me and said look hey do you want to write a book? And I'm like, yes, I've got a book written. And so like, cool, here's a contract. And I'm like, I haven't got a book written. I've got a bunch of notes. <laughs> and so I had to furiously scramble through and uh, quickly write up all my notes and draw some pictures. And uh, and then the book came out, yeah. How I Rob Banks, and it became like number one bestseller on Amazon uh, in like several categories. So it's been a fantastic success. And who's the target audience for the book? Everyone, everyone can can read it. It is, it is purposely made as a like pick up and put down book. Like you don't have to read it cover to cover. Um, it doesn't build in that way like a story or anything. It's like here are separate chapters that you can just pick up, read that for like ten minutes, or you know you can spend all day at the beach like reading it. Like yeah, I've, I've seen some amazing stories of people like getting through it and then just reading it again. Um, so it's just an easy to read book for everyone. You don't have to be a security expert to, to understand the stories. And if there's one lesson you hope that people would take away from reading your book, what would that be? Is is take an adversarial mindset around you of what you're looking at. Uh, you know, how to protect yourself. How would an attacker attack your personal life, your company, um, your friends and family? Um, that that's the key message from that is look at it through my eyes. And that's the, that's the point of the stories is each story gives you another thing to look out for. And, you know, you can, you can go down many, many rabbit holes, but I, I assure you that once you read that book, you will start seeing security flaws around it. I think this, this brings me back to the thing I said earlier about a lot of your, the way you present things are often like parables. There's a lesson to be learned. It's, it's fun and entertaining when you're talking about it. And, you know, a lot of the things you just sounding like Grand Theft Auto there of when I, you know, stole the helicopter, stole the gold, all these kind of things. But you actually do have a, you know, there's a clear message behind it and thinking about the adversaries and the different aspects of security and bringing that all together. I think that's just a really nice thing that's reflected in your work generally as well as the book. 
Fair enough, thank you, James. Um, yeah, it's it's the point of education, right? Make education fun. Make education memorable. Otherwise, people get what you're going to do, like click on a PowerPoint presentation and go through the slides for an hour. You're not going to remember that. But if you get someone like me to come in and speak at your company, you're going to remember that for for certain. Absolutely. So we're nearly out of time today, but I'm just going to end on this question. If you could go back, what advice would you give to your younger self starting out? Oh, start more. Start earlier. Start doing this earlier. Um, yeah. What other advice could I give myself? Um, yeah, maybe work a bit harder. Um, yeah, I, I work quite hard. I always think there's another hour or two in the day. Get, so, get yeah. the book written earlier. Yeah, get the book written <laughs> earlier. Definitely. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I think that's, that's great advice. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think we all wish we'd, we'd started things a little bit earlier. I was uh, listening to some Pink Floyd and the song Time the other day, and it's, uh, yeah. you know, wasting away the hours in the dull day because no one told you to run. And I think that's yeah. a, a great lesson I, I for think, life. Yeah, I think a lot of people think that they don't have time to do stuff. Well, you have time to watch TV, you have time to scroll through your phone. Like, put your phone down, go and do something productive, learn something, mess with something. Yeah, um, yeah. I posted the other day on LinkedIn, like I was just messing around with some stuff the other day and I learned something and I put in a bug bounty for it. Like messing around is half the fun of doing this job. Um, you don't have to take it too seriously. Um, but get out there. You've got plenty of time. There are 24 hours in a day and you only have to sleep for well, seven or eight of them or four if you're in. That's great. And if people want to find you online, where's the best place to track you down? Um, LinkedIn. Twitter sometimes if I can be bothered to post on there um, it's, it's kind of died a little bit um, YouTube is good Mr. Freaky Clown um, yeah or go to freakyclown.com and find out about my speaking ed engagements oh, that's great uh, unfortunately that's all we have time for on today's episode I think we could have gone on for another few hours just with some of the, the stories we didn't even get onto pigeons in bank accounts but that can be one for a, a later episode <laughs> Yes. So I'd like to thank FC for joining us today and sharing his fascinating journey with us from robbing banks, uh, we didn't even get onto the dealing with armed police actually, uh, to co-founding a company, writing books and uh, getting people in generally excited about thinking about the hacker mindset. I'm kind of exhausted well, thinking about all the things you've achieved there so far and excited, really excited to see what, what comes next from uh, Sergento uh, and yourself. Thank you so much, James, for having me along. It's been an absolute blast. And I can't believe how you've remembered some of those stories from the past as well. Um, so thank you for bringing those back into the, the forefront of my mind. Oh, you're more than welcome. As always, thanks to super producer Ben Supercuts Kramer and the team at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been Adventures of Alice and Freaky Clown. 